Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Afronomics. I'm Albert Zufak, the Chief Economist for the Africa Region at the World Bank and your host. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken a toll on human life and brought major disruption to economic activity across the world. The virus is only just beginning to take hold in sub-Saharan Africa, but it's already having serious and severe impact. This is absolutely a health crisis, but this is also an economic crisis. It's probably even going to lead to a food crisis unless serious action is taken. The World Bank's recent Africa's Pulse report found that COVID-19 is likely to drive sub-Saharan Africa into its first recession in 25 years, with growth potentially falling as low as negative 5.1% in 2020. This crisis is likely to push millions of households into poverty. Food security is at risk because of trade disruption, low agricultural production, and fewer food imports. And with 90% of the people working in the informal sector in Africa, it is harder to reach workers with the support they need. African countries need resources today, and they do. They need resources to help contain and combat this pandemic and to safeguard lives and livelihoods. The big question is, what can be done? I'm joined today by Acha Leke, the chairman of Mackenzie's Africa's region, to discuss what individuals, governments, and companies can do to help African countries and African people pull through this unprecedented crisis. Acha, welcome. Thanks, Albert, and thanks for the invitation. What's your overall assessment of the situation? What, what do you see happening, Acha? No, thanks. I mean, I think the situation, like you said, it's just starting, right? We've just sort of crossed the 10,000 case mark across Africa. Um, but if you start to look at how it could unfold, uh, it's a bit scary, right? So just like you did, we actually try to figure out what the overall impact could be of this crisis. And the truth is we're not actually not facing one crisis. We're facing three crises, right? So there's a global COVID-19 pandemic. And the impact there is, you know, disruptions in supply chains. Many of our countries, 50%, if not more, of the intermediate inputs come from China. It's also then affects uh, the demand globally, the export markets, which have, have declined, and uh, and reduction in FDI. Then the second crisis is the Africa COVID crisis. Um, and that uh, gets manifested, as you know, with, you know, limited movement. So tourism in many of our countries is significantly affected and so many Quite a few have, you know, tourism accounts for five, ten percent of GDP, and then the, the 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 ways of work, right? So household expenditure, business expenditure declining quite a bit, and then the oil crisis, right, which affects the um, the oil exporters, right? Actually, it's positive for the oil importers, but for the Nigerias, the Angolas of the world, the Algerias, it's a big impact. So we pull all that together, we have, you know, four scenarios we've come up with based on the global transmission and the an Africa transmission in the best case where we say, look, you know, if we're able able to contain the virus in, in Europe and the US eventually, and Africa is able to contain it as well, 
we're seeing sort of slightly positive growth uh, for Africa. In the worst case, where you know sort of there's a resurgence in China, U.S. and Europe struggle to contain it, and and it goes widespread. You know, we're projecting sort of minus four, not far from your minus five percent, right? So, and it's somewhere in between, in, in between that. Um, and and by the way, the the worst, the first, the best case, as we talked about, is is less and less likely. So we actually think that you know it's very likely that as a continent we will uh, go into a recession this year, like you mentioned. The unfolding of the crisis is clearly making uh, our assumptions obsolete by the day. But uh, what is uh, quite important is is that likelihood of a first recession for in the first one in, in the past 25 years. But the impact is not just on growth, Acha. Uh, it is also on, uh, uh, you know, welfare. And um, with, with confinement measures, um, you know, it's like it's likely that agricultural production may contract, and um, that will certainly be uh, uh, you know, terrible for uh, the food situation on the continent. Um, we certainly uh, already seeing a decline in imports of food, uh, on which a number of countries do depend, and and you know we are. We're simulating that you know losses in welfare could amount from seven percent in the optimistic scenario to more than ten percent. What's your take on the impact of this crisis on welfare? Again, you know, a, a fundamental impact on on multiple dimensions, right? When you think of welfare, if you just think of jobs in general, right? Um, we're still running the numbers. We're looking at somewhere, call it 10, 20 million job losses. And that's that's primarily on the sort of salaried employees. You imagine, like you said, you know, there's a huge uh, slew of the population that's more in the vulnerable employment space, right? And those will be, you know, the construction workers who are paid on a daily basis, um, uh, and the, the, the agriculture, you know, smallholder farmers, and there'll be a massive impact uh, there as well. Um, food is a big is a big question. Um, uh, you know, food supply, and and how do people even afford it? Right, like somebody said, you can have a ten percent chance of dying of 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 Corona or a hundred percent chance of dying of hunger, right? And that's the big the big debate we're having on the continent, which is you know lockdowns. We know how important those are for to try to address the health the health system, but how do you manage you know balancing the health crisis and the economic crisis and trying to sort of resolve both at the same time? So these are all issues uh, that that link to your question on, on on welfare. You know, across across every single sector, I think vulnerable populations hugely impacted. And the question is, how do you then try to help them with some social safety nets? Folks who are even in, in jobs, again, you know, you know, could be significantly impacted, right? And then again, sectors, right? The agriculture sector, the tourism sector. You go sector after sector, the construction sector. And if this lasts even longer, you know, the impact will be, it will be even more pronounced. That's right. And, and in terms of impact as well, uh, Acha, uh, you did mention this, this uh, reduction in financing flows. Um, you've mentioned FDI, uh, tourism. One channel that may have a devastating impact on household in Africa is remittances. And looking at the numbers, it's quite striking that we have up to six African countries that have 
remittances accounting for more than 10% of their GDP. And those remittances are clearly coming from citizens who are living now in these countries in the West, especially the US and Europe, where strict confinement measures are leading to higher unemployment. How do you see uh, remittances affecting countries uh, in Africa? And what's your take on that question? Again, you know, like across the board, uh, you know, everything, I think if you look at any single sector of the economy, you know, there's none. No, there are few, I mean, we can come back to some, the few that may actually be positively impacted, right? But most, most sectors and the ones that are positively probably, you know, sectors like telecom sector, as people, you know, work more, work more remotely, uh, you know, sectors, maybe like the healthcare sector, um, uh, but most sectors and remittance is a big one, as you know, it's a big uh, uh, input into many of our countries that, uh, like you said, many countries is a significant portion of GDP that comes through remittances, right? Both, I think, from outside of Africa, but also for within the continent, right? So you have the migrant workers in one country who are sending money back home to support the family, right? And, and it's affected on both sides, right? You know, in the U.S., because this is a global crisis, right? So the, the, the guys outside of Africa who are sending money home to their families as you know, lockdowns become more severe there. As you know, they lose jobs. As the income reduces, you know, they'll have less disposable income to send back to 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 the continent. And then the migrant workers here, again, same thing, right? As this uh, situation gets even worse, and they lose their jobs, they'll have very little to send back home. So you 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 get hit on both on both sides. That's right. So Acha, we have to look beyond these numbers that are clearly very grim. And, and focus our discussion on what can be done about this. We know, um, you know, the situation uh, is gonna be quite uh, dramatic given um, the multiplicity, the multiplicity of this uh, transmission channel, given, um, you know, the sheer size of the fiscal crisis, for example, facing uh, oil and mineral exporters in Africa due to this uh, uh, crisis, as we've seen the collapse in, uh, in, in, in oil and other, other minerals prices over the past uh, couple of months. Um, broadly speaking, what should African countries do about this COVID-19 crisis? So first, you know, we think um, every all stakeholders have to come together to help address it, right? So, you know, like you have four sets of stakeholders, of course, governments, it's important for them to come together and help address it. It's important for the private sector to play a role. It's important for development partners uh, to play a role and for the citizen, right? And the reality is when you think of what's happening, the kind of packages we're seeing around the world, Africa is unique in a number of ways, right? We don't have the fiscal capacity. We don't have the $2 trillion the U.S. has to pump into the economy, right? You know, our revenue to GDP is 19%. And then we use 22% of that revenue to go pay debt, <laughs> debt servicing, right? So that we need support from, you know, players like ourselves and partners uh, around the world, multilateral and bilateral, to help us with that. We have, you know, highly informal economies. 80% of our employment comes from SMEs. So whatever packages we put together has to, has to really, you know, target that sector and also the informal sector. And we're starting to see some of that. Look at our demographics, right? Young, poor, right? You know, many of us, many of our people live in slums. Like somebody told me, you know, when you live in a shack with six other people, 
self-isolation is actually when you leave the house, not when you're in the house, right? So thinking very differently. That's, that's a very, very important point. About, about these quarantine methods, right? But also, you know, there's data which shows when schools close for a long time, it's harder for girls to come back to school. So what are some of the long-term measures or implications of some of these measures we're putting in place? And then finally, our healthcare system, you know, it's fragile at best, right, on a good day. Um, and so how, but how it has to be significantly uh, expanded and very quickly to cater for that. So, 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 so those are some of the challenges we're dealing with now. Um, to your question, on the government side, we say the, sort of the five things they need to focus on. The good news is, uh, and we're talking to many of them and helping a number on this, they're, they're all focusing to a certain extent on these, right? One is creating this nerve center, you know, sort of a group at the center that's responsible for overseeing. This is sort of like, you know, like a command, you know, like a control. How do you make sure everything is happening? Because you need to manage a lot of different um, uh, uh, programs and initiatives and stakeholders and really leveraging the private sector. We'll come back to that. But beyond that, they have to focus on the health crisis. That's really, you know, how do you get the test kits? How do you get, you know, oxygen? How do you get ventilators? How do you get the health workers? How do you get the beds, the ICU beds? So all of that health crisis, how do you get people to come and get tested? How do you trace, trace them after that? The second is, as we spoke about food, right? Even as you um, you know, you do some of these lockdowns, you need to make sure there's food supply, but not just availability, but also the pricing, right? We're seeing uh, some some issues here on, on price gouging. So how do you make sure the price, uh, you manage the price? And then access to, you know, the essential services, whether it's utilities or education or telecoms. Then the third is around how do you support the population, right? So very much how do you protect jobs? Because there's a big risk of, like I said, you know, even the AU put out a number of 20 million job losses. We think, you know, that, that that is a risk, right? And that's only on the stable jobs, right? Again, for people who are not salary paid, it could be even worse. Um, so what do you need to do packages to put in place to uh, protect those jobs? And on the most vulnerable people, how do you provide social safety nets? And the reality is in many of our countries don't even have such programs already today, right? So how do you identify them? Where are they? How do you make sure there's no fraud? How do you actually do you get the package to them, whether it's a food hamper or some money, you know, to, typically through digital channels. And the final piece for them is on the, on the economy, right? So, you know, running these stimulus to understand the impact, how big of a hole are they going to have? How are they going to fill that hole? What are they going to save uh, themselves from a government expenditure perspective? Where are they going to get uh, uh, the additional uh, money to, 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 for fiscal stimulus? How big of fiscal stimulus do they need to put in place? But also, as you think about that, is also they need to also start to think a bit about recovery, right? Because we're not going to be in this for a long forever, right? We'll recover, and starting to think through, you know, what we need to do to, you know, to better position yourself as a country uh, in the recovery. So that's really what government uh, need. To, uh, and, and by the way, they are focusing on these. We think they need to do it much faster. So actually, these are extremely pertinent points, and and from what um, I hear you saying. Uh, we need to actually differentiate the kind of response um, that is working elsewhere in the world that we can actually um, adopt. But, but we also need uh, to differentiate our policy response uh, to really uh, match the structures of our economies. And, and that's a very, very important point. Just copycatting may not be the solution for all the, 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 the policy responses. Now, on, on what is working elsewhere, I, I like the point you made on really taking the time to set up a real command control center 
uh, equipping it with or making sure it's led by high level, highly respected uh, scientists or technical people and, and, and clearly uh, avoid politicizing uh, that, uh, uh, that, 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 that uh, structure, uh, but also coordinating within government uh, to ensure that from the top executive in the country to the Minister of Health, to the Minister of Economics and Finance, that they actually speak, you know, the same, you know, through the same voice and, and basically provide reliable information. Are you seeing this happening? I know in, in uh, DRC, for example, they have appointed uh, the, the, uh, the medical doctor who led the Ebola response crisis as the head of that task force. And I thought that was a very, very wise move. Are you seeing that happening elsewhere in Africa? Yeah, I think, you know, also in most countries that we've, you know, we've, we've inter interacted with have actually set up such centers now. You know, some are more effective than others, right? Because to your point, you know, the many, many work streams that need to be coordinated here. And so the governance of, of, of this, who's responsible, who's driving what, and how do you make sure you coordinate it is important. But I think that's one where most of our countries are, are putting that in place, right? I think where... Um, you know, um, the, the first thing I think we knew where we're seeing a big divergence is just, you know, how seriously they're taking this crisis, right? And if we go away from, you know, self-isolation on one extreme, or well, there's do nothing than the self-isolation, to the other extreme, there's a full lockdown like in South Africa, right? You've seen countries across that spectrum, right? And it's fair because they're try also trying to figure out, you know, what do we need to do? You know, do we just lock, lock down specific regions like, you know, Nigeria's done versus the full country? Do we, you know, just do a curfew at night like many of our countries have done? At what point do we sort of escalate it as I think about it? And that really gets informed by, you know, how, how a case is progressing, but also what's our testing strategy? Do we have kids to test? Do we have testing kits or not, right? Um, uh, and do we, do we really know how to trace people once we test? So all of that is coming to play. But I think what we really need to see is much more um, bolder responses from our governments, right? Because the, the fear, this is an exponential curve, right? You know, today we're sitting at 11,000. People have run models. We've actually run our own epidemiological model for Africa, right, to see how this thing could unfold. And Imperial mm -hmm. College has a model out there, and a couple of others are coming out next week. But, you know, if we don't control this, we're, we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands leading to millions of deaths. Yeah, if not millions of deaths, absolutely. Of cases. So, so we need to take this a lot more seriously in many of our countries. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Now, the functioning of those command uh, centers uh, across the world is certainly making a difference. And African countries really need to adopt that practice. But there are so many other uh, policy responses that need to be different. You did mention how informality dominates our economies. How else do you see policy response in Africa being different from what is being done in the world? I think what we're seeing, one is, first, who funds it, right? So we just don't have the capacity. So a lot of what's happening here is figuring out, we've, you know, we've seen how the ministers of finance are going and asking for a $100 billion package, right? They're asking for sort of debt relief on the, at least interest payments for for 2020, right? So, I think what we're seeing here is it's not that we have we don't have the capacity to actually fund this, these uh, packages. So, really needing to work with our development partners and getting them and convincing them on board and help and support us in this in this is one. That's one. 
two is, um, let's say you actually get the money, how do you then pump it back into the economy, right? That's, uh, given the structure of our economy. So how do you go and support SMEs primarily, right? So what is the most effective way to, to support these companies? And in our cases, you know, you're really supporting them mainly, for, mainly to help the employees, right? To make sure that they can sustain that employment and going to pay them. Because there's a big risk of saying, you pump into the economy and people use the money to go pay other debt, right? As opposed to using it for, you know, for protecting uh, the, the worker. So how do you make sure that happens? That's at least a second, that, that's a bit different from, from what you see, at least in developed markets. The third is on the vulnerable side, right? So again, here is many of our countries, you don't have these social safety nets. So, and we have a, a much bigger proportion of vulnerable populations. Right. So what kind of packages do you put in place for them? How do you reach them? Uh, it's easy in a country where you already have such a program to then just, just piggyback on that program. In countries where you don't, how do you then create it? You know, how do you target these people? Where are they? How do you make sure that you're giving it to the rights of the people? What do you give them for how long? So are all kind of things that are actually much more um, relevant for, I know this is Africa, you know, my colleagues in India, my colleagues in Latin America, we're talking about the same issues, right? But for emerging markets, these are some of the issues that are relevant and different. And and, and that issue of fiscal space you are mentioning is is huge, uh, actually, for African countries. And this is uh, leading uh, not only African leaders, but also international institutions such as the World Bank and IMF to call for a debt service moratorium. Uh, you know, the idea of a standstill when it comes to debt service is now being floated and and from our research, we do believe the whole world should uh, rally behind it because if you just look at debt service for uh, sub-Saharan African countries in 2018, the region paid $35.8 billion, 2018. And out of the, the $35.8 billion in debt service in 2018, 9.4 billion was paid off uh, to official bilateral creditors. So just imagine what it would do for the fight for the COVID if Africa was to use those 35 billion, uh, you know, to create some fiscal space. It wouldn't even still be enough because, as you mentioned earlier, Acha. The continent may need up to hundred billion dollars uh, to to fight this crisis, and even more. Right, I think hundred billion is what we're looking at now. But if you look at some numbers, we're also trying to size it now. But you know, some people are talking more like in the hundred fifty to hundred billion dollar range, right? That's right. These are changing at the, at the light speed. But you know, that idea of a debt service moratorium. What's your view? You know, I think whatever we can do to to create the capacity is important. Right. So it would be great if, you know, the bilateral uh, and the multilaterals, you know, to whom we, we owe this come out, come to the table and help us because everybody has to play a role. Right. So governments actually have also have to play a role. So I think that's important. But what's also important for governments to figure out, you know, you know, we looked at, at sort of even before the crisis, you know, the sort of public finance opportunity in Africa. We identified sort of 100 billion dollars half of which was generating more revenue through taxes, and that's more through more efficient tax administration, actually not changing tax rates. But the other half of which was just being more efficient. Right? Governments are also not the most efficient. Right? I think there is an element of, 
of how much you know other parties can help us, and then this will be go a long way to helping. I think there's an element of our governments needed to figure out you know how can how can they be a bit more efficient as well, even a lot more efficient now, and you know how much they can squeeze cost and contain it. Uh, and then the question, you know, where is then the rest of the of the stimulus potentially going to come from, right? We have uh, a number of, of 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 philanthropic institutions that are helping, right? And so, how much more can they help? You know, you have Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that have stepped up. You've seen what Jack Ma Foundation has done, the Mastercard Foundation that is stepping up as well, right? So you have. So I think all of these players need to come together to figure out how we're going to really. Uh, raise that sort of hundred. I think it's more hundred and fifty to two hundred billion dollars that we need. Completely agree with you, Acha. There and on the debt side again, you and I know how the structure of African debt has changed over the past ten years, and the uh, rising weight of private debt in African publicly uh, guaranteed debt. So, what can we do? Uh, when it comes to uh, private debt, we know uh, African countries owe quite a lot from the uh, issuance of euro bonds. There are also private creditors that are really quite important in countries like Chad or Angola or Zambia. What can be done from the private debt side? Again, that's that's another you know tricky one. We just actually had a a, a call today. We've done it sort of the a group of Africans who've come together to say, let's try to, from a Pan-Africa perspective, try to address this crisis. So people like, you know, Vera from ECA and Gazi and Donald Taberuka from Gavi and Global Fund with Dr. Tedros. So private sector folks like Tijan Tiam and, and Strive and, uh, you know, Mayaki and John Kangasson from Africa CBC. So there's actually a group of, you know, sort of 10, 15, because sort of once a week we try to meet up to figure out, you know, how can we as a group really and uh, look at more of a Pan-Africa uh, response to this. And there was a big, a big discussion we had to say, like, you know, you know, it won't look good if we take all this, you know, sort of debt moratorium and need to go pay off private debt, right? That's not what it's for. And so how do you get the private sector companies to also come to the table? Now you can imagine it's also difficult for them because these are private sector companies who, again, you know, back to, you know, they will need the support. And if they don't, what happens to the employees and their the people they employ, right? So I think that's that's trickier, but finding a way to um, get into, uh, I think, a, a, finding a deal that we can do with them, I think, will be very important. I think it will be very difficult for uh, our countries to say, look, we're going to do this debt moratorium, we're going to take that money instead of trying to pump it back into the economy to save jobs, we're going to use it to go and pay off private debt, right? But also say we're not going to pay them off is also going to be difficult because they're private sector companies who actually you know contributed to helping us uh, when when we needed it the most, right? So I think that's a bit more tricky. But that we need to sit. No, it is tricky. We need to sit on the table with them and 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 and, and negotiate. And I believe that's that's crucial because if you just watch the markets uh, this past couple of weeks, Acha, I mean the spreads on 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 African debt have really shot up. You know, we're speaking on. Uh, you know, speaking about, you know, of, of more than 1,200 basis points for countries like Ghana, I mean, this is this is serious. And I don't think in this fiscal crunch, African countries are going to be... And the debt, the debt is also in our currency, right? And we're seeing what happens exactly, to our currencies in Africa. Exactly. You're, you're having a huge pressure on, on exchange rates. Um, and, and that are depreciating, currencies are depreciating. And, and, you know, we will need to have a, uh, a forum or a, you know, 
a way to actually discuss with private creditors as well, because they, uh, you know, your help would be much needed. But I agree with you. It's not easy because we don't have, there is no uh, official or global coordination mechanism, just like there isn't for non-Paris club members uh, who are also creditors uh, for African countries. So that cooperation or that uh, coordination at the global level, it's, it's also needed there. Yeah, and the question is also, is there a role, we also discussed that, what is the role for play, you know, entities like the African Union, right? So we can, when we're thinking, when we're thinking even just, even just think about just buying ventilators, every country is going to try to go buy a few here and there, but all countries are getting squeezed out, right? Because uh, they're getting outbid and they, you know, but is there a way for more of a pan-African, let's pull these resources together and let's figure out how much we need at the continent level. Let's then go and negotiate, you know, as one. And then we've got to figure out the supply chain and market once we get those. Same thing on this front, right? Is there something where, you know, we go as, as Africa and uh, have negotiations and try to do it, you know, from, a, from an integrated, aligned Africa request versus individual countries? It is, it is fascinating, the point you're making, Acha, there, because in our simulations, uh, we find that if Africa, you know, faces the, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa faces this COVID-19 crisis in a disorderly way, the cost to uh, household welfare could be extremely high. It could go all the way to 12% decline in welfare if we go uncoordinated. So if, for example, African countries were to, uh, you know, allow more trade or even take the opportunity of this crisis to allow regional value chains, as you were mentioning, or boost intra-Africa regional trade, we would have actually a, uh, a, a, a lower impact on, on, on welfare and African countries would collectively benefit from that coordination at the African Union level. Uh, and and the, the, the framework of the African continental free trade area could actually be helpful. So we should clearly not lose the opportunity of this crisis to push in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I remember like, you know, somebody said, you know, you should never waste a good crisis, right? I, I do think, if you think about coming out of this, I do think, I, I do hope, and I really think it will, you know, help unite us as a continent where we realize that, you know, some of these things, if one person is affected, everybody gets affected, right? So we need to be much more united, have much more of a Pan-Africa perspective. It's very clear that when you think of supply chains globally, people are going to start to bring things back home, but it's going to be important, right? You know, you can't continue to rely on different regions of the world because if they get affected, it affects you completely. So, you know, what are these type of products we want to manufacture more locally? in Africa, you know, where do you want to man, man, manufacture it for the whole continent, right? Because it may not make sense for every single country to try to do it themselves. I'm hoping that one of the outcomes of this crisis is a much more unified and integrated Africa uh, uh, that also speaks with one voice in general. Absolutely. And, and, and that is clearly uh, going to raise uh, some old debates uh, in the economics profession, such as uh, import substitution, right? We, we're seeing clearly uh, the need for African countries to actually get some level of industrialization going, some level of value chains in the manufacturing sector to be able to cater for this, uh, for, uh, for these kind of situations when all the trade barriers are 
uh, are up. No, exactly, exactly, right. And and the question, you know what, and and what are we going to push to, you know, what sectors of of industry and manufacturing do you want to really focus on, right, over time, and how do we do that? In my mind, you know, I think if you know every single country now wants to go create a pharmaceutical industry and manufacture for their own country, you know, in many cases it may be subscale, right. And so this is a tough conversation to say, you know what, you know, which countries focus on what for the region, right? And which other countries focus on what for the region. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's why it's so important to think value exactly. chain within exactly. the region. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. One point, one last point I would like to raise with you, Acha, before uh, we close this, this podcast is learning from the past. This is not the first crisis, and this is not the first health crisis Africa will be facing. And not long ago, we went through the Ebola crisis. But we should certainly be learning from the lessons of Ebola. And one of the few lessons, when you, you speak to epidemiologists, you speak to healthcare professionals, public, uh, public health professionals, one thing that comes up is the role of uh, community-level problem-solving, how it was so important in Liberia, for example, that villages, that, you know, local leaders who are credible, unlike some of the top uh, officials in some countries, uh, that uh, local-level responses uh, are key to uh, very, very quickly flatten this curve. are you seeing this happening in some countries? You know, um, how are we learning lessons from the past? You know, it's, it's, it's about not only that credible information, but also solving problems at the village in rural, village level and rural areas where to get the water, because we are speaking of uh, containment in Africa, and, you know, in some cases, as we were living in, in the West. There might not even be electricity. There might not be water. There might not be, uh, you know, soap. Getting communities to organize themselves to actually avail those uh, important uh, uh, goods, it's it's something that would uh, be important. The other lesson from the Ebola crisis is how to protect healthcare professionals because it will be key in this res- in the response. So, Acha, do you see anything happening uh, that goes in that direction on the continent? No, no, you're absolutely right. And that's why I say, you know, everybody has to play a role. And you saw, you know, the, we, we didn't talk about the citizens, right? We think there's a clear role for, for citizens and civil society to play, right? So, uh, first, even just understanding what needs to be done to flatten the curve, right? What we can all each contribute towards that, right? So, the social distancing, the respecting, you know, whatever sort of curfews, lockdowns are, are, have been put in place. So all these things, because we all have to play a role in, uh, in, in flattening that curve. So that we're starting to see, I, I don't think, I, again, I, don't, I think across Africa, I honestly don't think we are, as Africans as a whole, taking this crisis serious enough, right? That's why we are, you're doing as well, raising the flag to say, guys, we need to uh, take it a lot more seriously, right? But, but, but that's the thing, that's, what um, we definitely need to see on 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 the on the citizens in front, and that you know, and the, all the it, not in the villages as well, right? But I think this crisis for now is affecting primarily the rural regions and the urban regions, and then slowly going into into these rural regions. But even in these urban regions, what role do we need to play in some of the slums, right? You know, and we're seeing a lot of innovation, right? So you, you probably have seen some of these videos circulating of people who are coming up with very interesting ways 
uh, you know, to 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 to, to you know, new products and new services around how to how to wash our hands and coming up with you know innovative ways to you know with with solar panels to pump these uh, uh, new uh, uh, water washing machines and those kinds of things. On the healthcare professional, again, we have mm-hmm. to. I mean, the two things: one is how do you scale it up? We just don't have enough, right? Let's be clear. If, if prices get out of control, which we are at risk of it, you know, we just don't have enough. So. How do you scale it up? But of course, how do you then protect that? So that as we think about testing or even PPE, right, all these masks, as you know, we start to, you know, either hopefully manufacture some locally, but even import them. How do you make sure our healthcare professionals are really well equipped to deal with this? Because we have to protect them so they can also protect us, right? So I think, and we can, again, to your point, we can learn from, from the Ebola crisis. I, I think what's happening for me, the Ebola crisis was very, it was confined to a few countries, right? And so it was very easy to sort of, if you're in a different country, not really pay that much attention. I think the difference here is this is an African, it's a global crisis and it's an African crisis everywhere you go, right? Today, you know, Dr. Tedros was saying there are probably four countries that are not reported any cases, but if not, everybody had, right? So, so it's, a much, it's a much, much bigger scale. And uh, and if we, if, you know, if, again, like I said, if we don't really pay attention and, and take this incredibly seriously, and be a lot bolder in our action. We're looking at you know uh, you know huge impact on, uh, on 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 our people, you know, from a number of cases and actually, unfortunately, number of deaths as well. You know, I cannot agree more with you, Acha. As of yesterday, I think we had 45 out of uh, the 48 countries in sub-Saharan Africa who were already uh, affected. So uh, this crisis is global. Uh, nobody's going to be spared, uh, unfortunately. So it's important to really think, um, you know, think as 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 one, as you mentioned, you know, really bringing this this homegrown African solutions to uh, to this crisis, and and uh, and to that, I think the private sector, the role of the African private sector should act, should be very very uh, uh, salient as well. Yes, we're seeing Jack Ma coming with help, but you know, our own local private sector uh, should be uh, stepping in to help as well. No, absolutely. And, and just on that one, I think we're, we're starting to see that, right? Especially those, we say the large private sector companies and the, the business associations. So you see the, them coming together big time in South Africa, right, to work with the government to address it. You're starting to see them. They've created an association in Nigeria, right, around the bank, the Liko Dangote Foundation, they're doing that. So you're starting to see it, right? We're also thinking, and that group I was talking about, creating more of a business leaders group with, you know, all the big uh, private sector folks across the continent. So, so there's clearly a, a, a role for the private sector. And even in many, in some of these procurement supply chain, leveraging private sector companies to ensure that these uh, medical supplies get to all of our countries and get to, you know, the right locations, uh, the right hospitals, the right clinics, you know, leveraging all the supply chain, you know, uh, uh, systems they have in place. So I think there's a the big role starting to step up. But again, I think there's a lot more that the private sector can do. Absolutely. I the they can step in and, and, and really start producing some of these masks and these uh, facial protection gears that are needed uh, and, and for which we may not have uh, imports available because everybody's scrambling to have them. So these are also uh, opportunities uh, for the private sector, for the African private sector to, to try. Yeah. And then again, this will create jobs, right? So this is not just for this crisis and then for, you know, this will now be a new sort of uh, area of manufacturing that we can continue to grow and even at some point hopefully export out of 
out of Africa for the rest of the world. And that's a great way to uh, to end this conversation, Acha, which is this positive uh, uh, note that uh, clearly this is going to be uh, you know terrible for the whole world, for African countries, but this is not the end of the world. We will recover and we should be thinking ahead already and, and building in our policy response elements of resilience. It's important that uh, you know we come up with these African homegrown solutions. So with this, uh, Acha, I would really want to thank you for being here and for sharing your views. Uh, this is serious. We all need to play our part. Thank you so much, Acha. Thanks for the invitation. And, uh, you know, let's all, like you say, play our part to help address this, this very serious crisis on the continent. But thanks for the invitation. Thanks for doing this. You're most welcome. A reminder to our listeners, you can find all our recent publications at worldbank.org slash AFRCE. And for more, you can follow me on Twitter at Albert Zuefak to share your views, questions, and ideas. Until next time, thanks for listening. <music>